You are now listening to the July 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth. Without the shock value, this program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Why can't a woman be more like a man? That's what Henry Higgins said, Polly. Yes. In My Fair Lady, which is a a show from another generation. (laughs) But why did he say that? He was completely baffled by (laughs) Eliza Doolittle's behavior. (laughs) And that is why we call our book The Marital Mystery Tour. And if you want to get one of those, you can get it on Amazon. We also can have it in Audible uh, if you like to listen to it. Or you can go to our website, Alan, uh, or you can email us, Alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk.org. And we'd love to communicate with you. If you also have a question, feel free to email us. And last time we talked about top 20 tips for making your mate smile sex is what Polly wrote. And we talked about the first seven things, uh, the whole relationship, romance, uh, non-sexual touching, sensitive to the fact that she may just be overwhelmed with lots of different things going on for the woman to be sensitive to the man that he actually does have physical needs that are real and we didn't say this last time but the need not to use sex as a weapon against especially men because what scripture says in Hebrews is don't uh, forsake uh, the marriage bed but keep it undefiled and only separate uh, or only stop having sex just for fasting and prayer. And I just don't know that many couples that have been doing that lately, uh, keeping separate from that. I've heard a lot of couples in my counseling office that are dealing with, I just don't like the way he approaches me. I don't like how he's talking to me, and therefore I am withholding. And this is to be a regular part of your life. And it says that if you don't do this on a regular basis, the devil will get a foothold in your life. And so sex is the reflection of a spirit and soul that are together, and therefore they want to join together their bodies. And your body is not yours. It's mine, and mine is not yours. It's yours. (laughs) How how does that work? Mine is not, not mine, it's yours. <laughs> yeah. And um, Polly just uh, just saw that tremendous look of, <laughs> that's not what he said. So, I think I need your body to go do the dishes. All right. I think I need your body to go mow the lawn. <laughs> so number eight is understand that criticism and anger kill emotional oneness. Weigh your words and be aware of subtle 
but or not so subtle underlying messages. I mean, sarcasm is like sulfuric acid on a relationship and anger also. So the way life and death is in the power of the tongue, we can kill each other with it or we can bless each other. And we need to be very aware of how we talk with each other, our tone of voice and that sort of thing. And some people are very quick to express verbally whatever it is that they're feeling. And so if one of us sees something that the other one is doing and says, oh, I, you shouldn't be doing that. I, I, you, you're not doing that right. Or you become angry and just fling out your words, like just throw them out because they're right there in your head and you just have to express them without putting any filter on it and without weighing what the consequences of those words are going to possibly be you can really do damage mm. in the relationship that it's not immediately apparent, but you build end up building emotional walls between yourself and that and the other person. Well, I had a couple, I mean, it was their second marriage, and so you already know that something had gone wrong in the other marriage. But, I mean, he, for his job, he's just always talking. And so when he gets home, he just doesn't want to talk. And unfortunately, she's a woman, and she wants to talk. And um, she needs to have him open up. Otherwise, just going in the bedroom isn't going to work. That's so. right. How about respect? Respecting your husband's Polly. You know, it's the one thing a wife is commanded to do in Scripture. Just like children are told, that the one thing they need to do is to honor their parents. Wives are told to respect their husbands. And the husband is given this place of, I hate to use the word authority, but let's just say, let's say headship. Because when you have two people and you don't agree 100% or, you know, things aren't always exactly 50-50 and sometimes one person has to make the decision. And that person, biblically, is the husband in the marriage relationship. He's the one on whom the, um, the um, <laughs> I can't think of the word either, the, not the, the authority of God. It's like the buck stops here. When God says, why did you make this decision? It's the husband who is standing in that place having to answer to the Lord for, well, this is what I thought we needed to do. And and that's a, a lot of responsibility spiritually that the husband bears for the relationship before the Lord. And also, it's the position that a, a man has representing a marriage in society and it's a heavy burden and wives are called upon to give their husbands respect. Right, but in a practical sense, you, I mean, <laughs> what is it that, that a husband wants in terms of respect? He wants his wife to like him. <laughs> he wants his wife to be able to say words of affirmation. He wants her to be cheerleading and saying, way to go, I really am excited about who you are as well as what you're doing. And you know, those practical things I just think women do not even get how important that is to a man. 
for a, a woman to want him and want him by her side, not just always him being the one doing it for her. Right. It's a built-in need that men have to be respected. And when we're respected and when we're loved physically, we feel respected. Right. And because I you want me. Right. I mean, uh, there, there is hardly any greater thing than a man to feel wanted. And specifically, he works at He's a physical person. He likes to deal in physicalness. Right. I mean, every person is worthy of respect. We all want to be respected. But in, in the relationship between men and women, in the marriage, it's vital that women give respect to their husbands, just as husbands are commanded to love their wives. We tend to not, in the course of everyday life, to, we tend to not want to do those things. <laughs> it's just yeah. the way our flesh is, and that's why we're told we need to do it. Right. So number 10 was wives. Remember, having sex with your husband is meeting one of the most important needs. We think it's the number one need, but really, when studies were done, men have just as much need to feel respect and to have belong. And uh, don't treat it lightly. Make this, this is a connection that can only happen with your husband. So, I mean, it's a unique relationship, and it should be unique to just you and your husband. And private things that go on in the bedroom should not be talked about with your women friends out in the country. So, um, you know, if you have problems in the bedroom and you need a counselor, that's a different thing. But, uh, you know, I hear women swapping stories and stuff. And that's very degrading to the marriage relationship and to your husband. So 11, sex provides both of you with a release of tension physically, emotionally, while providing you with a way to be sensitive to each other. You learn how to make sacrifices and give and receive pleasure. That's an important part of the physical relationship. Definitely is. It, it does provide a tremendous physical release as well as an emotional release along with it. And, and God designed it that way. Right. And so, again, that's why he said it should be something that's regular, a part of your your lifestyle. Right. Um, I, you know, I had a couple who, you know, they, um, <laughs> they're so busy, they just don't get a chance to do that. And a month goes by and they haven't had sex. And they're wondering why their intimacy isn't quite there. And, you know, sex is the glue that helps keep marriage together because, again, it is a unique uh, physical uh, interaction that only you and your spouse have together. So it's a way of showing love to one another that can't be shown with anyone else. Well, and it's also a way of being sensitive to each other and making sacrifices for each other. As as we know from textbooks, um, men come to a point of full arousal a lot more quickly than women do. And so men generally have to wait longer 
for their wives to get to a point of orgasm. Well, she needs 15 or 20 minutes. Most of them do. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are occasions. She's ready to go. Right. And there are always exceptions. But in general, a husband needs to wait a while for his wife. And so there's a there's a little bit of sensitivity and sacrifice involved in the process. And if all he does is go in and as the song used to say, a oh, wham bam, thank you, ma'am, and he's and he's done because he's fulfilled his own need, but hasn't taken the time to be sensitive to what gives her pleasure and what brings her to a full point of arousal and enjoyment of the act, then he's not being sensitive to her. And it's very easy for that part of her life then to be dissatisfying. And I believe there are books, Pillow Talk, I believe is Kevin Lehman's book. There's uh, a classic that I don't think will ever go out of print. It's Ed Wheat. Dr. Ed Wheat wrote a book intended for pleasure and uh, there are other, uh, Julie Slattery has podcasts. She's trying to help women be discipled sexually because there's so much bad, uh, both data as well as information, as well as one out of two women have probably been abused. And so um, I have very horrible stories in the counseling room of women who basically were abused early in their life and then never could get over it. And therefore, the relationship with the man in the bedroom in their marriage has been terrible for 20, 30 years. And a lot of that is the need to go back and heal the hurt of the woman. You can't fix the marriage if one is so damaged, they can't receive or give the love that God intended. Some practical things, just personal lubricant, washcloth, breath mints, body lotion, oils, back rubs, foot rubs, the things that are very practical. And you have to find out for each other what is good for you, what helps you enjoy this experience. And there are different routines that can be helpful, and there are different routines that become ruts. And so we need to Every once in a while, check in. And if it's hard for you to talk about it, the thing that we've done over the years is either read a book or listen to a tape and then talk about it as it's going on or as we're reading. it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because even though um, people having sex, not necessarily the act of intercourse, but people going to bed together for the purpose of having sex is depicted a lot in our television shows and movies, and there's never any mention of any of the practical of those things. Very practical things like being finished and having a big wet spot on the sheet, for example. So we have we've started giving newlywed couples uh, wedding presents of what we call a flying carpet. Just getting them a nice big, fluffy, thick towel that they can lay down on the sheets and some personal lubricant, maybe a candle, a few things. And chocolates, things that... What was the the reaction of of the one person after they got the gift and they wrote us a note and said they weren't sure what it was for at the beginning and then they got it and now they 
they're late for meetings because <laughs> they use they're their magic They're going for rides carpet. on their flying carpet. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I guess that's maybe too much information. Uh, number 13, be aware of your personal hygiene. For some men, they don't even realize they need to take a shower. I grew up as an athlete. I just always wanted to take a shower. I know that's something that you've always said you've appreciated. I do. In this case, Paulie says cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> Very important. And same for the woman. I mean, but women usually are more attentive to those smells and things than men are. Most women want privacy, locking the door, making sure that there's some privacy in the bedroom. Are the children occupied? Like, and even if you don't normally put videos or MP3s or whatever, if you need an hour, just give them a video if you're not getting <laughs> normal times of sex. Yeah, it's not just even children. It could be the dog. I mean, how many people just, the dogs are always <laughs> roaming around the house. I, for one, don't want a dog in the bedroom with us. No, especially not on the bed. Okay. <laughs> and then we have a thing called swap for sex, and that's not changing partners or anything. That's actually one couple giving the other couple a chance to take the kids and have their house all to themselves. <laughs> so when the kids were young, that's what we did. Fifteen, agree not to answer the phone or take texts or voicemail. Turn the thing on silent. You really need to put boundaries in this area. What we call it is planned spontaneity. At this time, we are going to have an hour or two where, hey, nothing is going to interrupt us. And so, but you got to make precautions and plan. And, and I find that most people don't plan, especially for this area, and uh, don't realize how important it is. 16, do things that keep some mystery alive still in the marriage. For some people, that's lingerie. For some people, that's uh, dancing slow with clothes on. Uh, for me, it's clothes off. But <laughs> Polly, I need to make sure that I let her dance I, with them I on do. first. I love, I love slow dancing and feeling your muscles underneath your, your clothing. To me, that's very appealing. So whatever turns you on, ladies, this is your deal. And then 17, take advantage of resources and books. There are all kinds of MP3 podcasts, like we were just saying. Um, the parrots have good stuff, and uh, there's uh, Rosno. I, I can't remember his first name, but uh, the Smalley Institute. There are many different resources now, plenty of resources that we didn't have when we first got married. Uh, 18, realize that not every experience has to be a perfect 10. I just think it's important for us to talk about this. There are times where I'm trying to help Polly have a great time, and she's just saying, could you please just enjoy it yourself because I'm not there right now, and vice versa. And tiredness and fatigue is the enemy of the bedroom. Well, and there's also time pressure in other areas. If I have a lot of things that I need to get done and meetings that I have to go to, I'm going to be distracted by needing to take an hour out of my day. It sounds awful, but for a you woman... You mean it's not three hours? I thought we get three hours. <laughs> it's gay, yeah. But it involves getting undressed and then having to get cleaned up and, and dressed again and make the bed again. So figure out 
the way that works best for you. Right. And find out who gets most distracted. Uh, right. Well, not every time ha- has to be uh, a quickie uh, either. Y- you know, there are times when I know I need to take this break and breathe together with you and slow down and just really enjoy the process of being pleasured and giving and receiving with each other. The other ministry that has great stuff on this is Family Life Ministry, Dennis and Barb Rainey, who just stepped down from that ministry, but uh, it's still great resources. Barbara Rainey says, for women, you just like you get turned on by romance novels and stuff, you need to start thinking about romance earlier in the day and planning for it. And, uh, you know, for some women, it's better to just put it on the schedule and say, this is when we're going to do it. For other people, they want spontaneity. So Yeah. And when you talk about putting it on the schedule, number 19 is about making dates for those special sessions when we're both at the height of of our mutual <laughs> responsiveness. And for, for you, it tends to be it doesn't matter what time of day it is other than late at night because you're totally a morning right. person. Right, so it does matter what time of day. Right. After <laughs> 7 or 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, that's not good. Right, and it will you, also keep you awake at night when you're no. trying to go to sleep. And, um, and for me... The middle of the day, we decided between 10 and 2 or maybe even we could stretch it to 4 p.m. Um, but the middle of the day, which is very... You got to figure out when that can happen. That can happen on the weekend. Anyway, 20, uh, be willing to talk about your preferences with each other. I think this is very hard to do unless you have something outside of yourself to do it, either a checklist or inventory or a book. Does your spouse like foot rubs or back rubs or what helps them feel great in the bedroom? And 21, we think having doing a triple R weekend, recreation, romance, and renewal, feel free to contact us at walkandtalk.org to be able to get that. Having time to get away for a weekend of purpose where we do something fun we have time alone. Uh, Polly doesn't have to do the dishes, doesn't have to clean, etc. cetera. Uh, and we also plan in the seven areas of life. Again, if you want more information on that, just go to our website. It's been great being with you. We'll see you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org. Praise the
fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Faith Without Works is Dead, based on James 2, 14 through 17. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So there's a fascinating event that happens just after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you're familiar with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? He rides into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. And after he enters Jerusalem, he does something extraordinary. He cleanses the temple. He goes into the temple and he drives out all the money changers. He drives away all of those that are there with impure motives because this was God's house. His house was a house of prayer. Now, this was the second time that Jesus had done that. Jesus had driven out the money changers earlier in his ministry. He started his ministry by doing that. And as a bookend, he ends his ministry, really his earthly three-year ministry, by doing the same thing. He drives out the money changers. A pretty productive day, the triumphal entry and then driving out the money changers. It's at this point 
that Jesus retreats. And the Bible says that he retreats to Bethany. And Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. So Jesus, after all of this happens, retreats to Bethany for the day. The Bible says the very next morning, Jesus wakes up and something extraordinary happens. And instead of describing it to you, I want to read it for you out of the scriptures. Matthew chapter 21 says this. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And this is fascinating. And the fig tree withered at once. So what's the point? Why is this in the scriptures? Why is this event even in the scriptures? So Jesus runs across a tree. It doesn't have any figs on it. So he curses it. What's the deal? Well, it's pretty clear. The fig tree was representative of something. It was representing something. And what it was representing was Israel. It was fruitless Israel. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is described as God's vineyard. Time and again, let me give you an example. Isaiah 5, 7 says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice. He looked for fruit. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, more fruit. But behold, an outcry. God planted the nation of Israel as his vineyard. And he looked for fruit in that vineyard and he found none. Jeremiah says this, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Now I got a question. How many of you are gardeners in here? Any gardeners? Yes. How many of you have ever planted a garden and it was a desolate wilderness, right? That's what happens when I plant (laughs) things. It's a desolate wilderness. Well, in the same way, God planted the nation of Israel and uh, he looked for fruit and what he found was a desolate wilderness. Now it goes without saying that the one thing you would expect to find in a vineyard is fruit. This is why you plant a vineyard. This is why you plant things. You don't just want green shrubbery. You want fruit to come from what you have planted. That's the whole point. So when God chose the nation of Israel, they became his vineyard. He planted them as a nation. He watered them as a nation. He tended after them as a nation. And he looked for fruit and he found none. And then comes the Messiah, Jesus from heaven to earth. Here comes the King of Kings, God in the flesh. And he comes to his nation in person and he looks for fruit and he finds none. As a matter of fact, just a few verses down in the same passage that I read, Matthew 21, we're told the parable of the tenants. I don't know if you are familiar with the parable of the tenants, but it further illustrates this truth that God is looking for fruit in those that claim to be his children. Matthew 21 says this, here another parable, Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. So this master went to great lengths for this vineyard. And he went away, he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned yet another. These are the prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. 
Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Who's that? Jesus. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Let me say that again. Who will give them the fruits in their season. You see, it is God's desire that those of us who are his children bear much fruit. We see this all throughout the Bible. John 15 verse 5 says this, I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can't even bear the single, a single solitary piece of spiritual fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned, Jesus says. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look at verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now I want you to notice what verse eight says. There it is right there, verse eight. The proof that you and I or anyone for that matter is a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is evidence in the fact that we bear much fruit. Now, this is critically important. Why? Because there are millions, if not billions, of people in the world who claim to be Christians, who claim to be children of God, who claim to have saving faith. In his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, the author writes that some 80% or 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. Is that true? Could that possibly be true? In the book, he argues that, of course, those that are actually attending church with their Bibles, that are committed to prayer, that believe in orthodox doctrine, are very, very few, somewhere between 4 and 6%. It's fascinating, the disparity of those that claim to be Christians and those that behave like Christians. The question is, how do we know if someone is a genuine Christian, that they are truly born again and part of God's family? Well, the scriptures make it abundantly clear. You will know a tree by its fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. If it's a good tree, it will bear good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. It's just that simple. Even a child can understand. Jesus says this in Luke chapter six, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit. It's impossible. Bad trees cannot bear good fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. It's critical to our understanding today. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produce good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produce evil. Now this brings, us, this brings up one of the most scary issues in all the Bible. And trust me, I wish I didn't have to talk about this. I would rather talk about any other subject than this subject, but we've got to talk about it because... It is in our passage today. It is those that think they are Christians when in fact they are not. It's what we call false converts or false conversions. 
people who've professed to be believers, people who actually think they're believers, but in fact are spiritually dead, unregenerate, still in a state of enmity with God. As a matter of fact, this is such a serious matter that it is addressed time and time again throughout the New Testament, starting with James's big brother. Remember, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You thought you knew me, but in fact, I don't know you. Away from me, you evil doers. The ones who are saved, according to Jesus, are the ones who do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father isn't necessarily being religious because there are those in this passage that are very religious. They prophesy, they drive out demons, they perform many miracles. Listen, you can be extremely religious and not be saved. You can be incredibly intelligent and have great orthodox understanding of who God is and not be saved. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Even the demons believe that God is one, correct? You can have orthodox Christian beliefs and be a very religious person and not be saved. This idea of being a false convert, one who claims to be a child of God but bears no fruit, why do I bring it up? Why do I even have to address this issue? Because it's a sensitive subject and it doesn't, makes all of us feel a little uncomfortable. And we're like, why this? Here's why. Because it comes front and center in the book of James. James addresses this issue head on in James chapter two, beginning in verse 14. So it is on that note, church, it is my honor to present to you the word of God this morning. That was all in way of introduction to James chapter two, beginning in verse 14. So church, hear the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. You can't. That's the whole point. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But no one understand this. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
So here's the key to understanding this section. This section in James is all about the person who claims to have faith. Don't miss this. It's right there in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith or claims to have faith but does not have works? Can, such, can that faith save him? The fact of the matter is, is that millions, like I said already, there are millions upon millions, if not billions of people in the world today that fall into this category. They claim to have saving faith in Jesus. They claim to be Christians. Again, 80 to 90% of all Americans think in some way, shape, or form they are Christian. And by the way, I'm one of them. I claim to be a Christian, as does most everyone in this room here today. Is there a way to know that my profession of faith is genuine? Well, the biblical answer is yes. According to our passage today, James, following in the footsteps of his big brother Jesus, says that the person who claims to have faith will be a doer of God's word. They will have the works or the fruit to back up their profession of faith. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will, the doers of God's will are the ones that are saved. Now, I got to be crystal clear here. This is very important. We are not saved by our works, but the faith that saves produces works. Let me say it again. We are not saved by our works, but the faith that saves produces works. On the flip side of that, the person who claims to have saving faith, but does not bear spiritual fruit... Such a person, according to James, is not saved. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The way this question, by the way, is constructed in the original language, can that faith save him? It implies a negative answer. It implies a negative answer. Meaning, no, absolutely not. Such a faith cannot save him. It's impossible. And there are some who will say that this passage isn't talking about eternal salvation, when in fact that is exactly what this passage is talking about. And there is no significant theologian nor commentator in the history of the church nor any of the Protestant reformers that would disagree with me on that. James is warning people who claim to have faith but do not have the, have the accompanying works or fruits, such a person's faith is dead and it's not able to save them. The person according, this person, according to James, is no different from the demons who believe that God exists. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have great theology. They have fantastic theology. As a matter of fact, demons have better theology than anyone in this room right now. As a matter of fact, probably collectively, all together, demons have probably better theology than all of us in this room. Demons believe that God is one. They believe in the Trinity. They know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one true God that created all things seen and unseen. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Demons have fantastic theology, but as I said, you can be a religious person with great theology and not be saved. You can be a very religious person with great theology and not be saved. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even they understand <laughs> who God is, so much so that they shudder before God. See, folks, a person is never saved by a mere profession of faith. Let me say that again. A person is never saved by a mere profession of faith. They must be in possession of faith. Let me say that again. You're not saved by a mere profession of faith. You are saved 
when you are in possession of faith and you will know that you are in possession of genuine saving faith when you are bearing spiritual fruit, according to Jesus and according to James. Now I need to address a very important issue at this point. So one of the core tenets of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine of sola fide, right? We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in. And it is the scriptures that are our final source of authority, not the Pope. The scriptures alone are our final source of authority. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory, God alone. God alone be the glory, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority, and this is all to the glory of God alone. These are the core tenets of the Protestant Reformation. But this section of scripture in James seems to imply that we are justified by our works. As a matter of fact, if you talk to a Catholic, they will be quick, a Catholic that knows their doctrine, a Catholic that is truly understanding of the Catholic Church's doctrine, they will be quick to run right to James 2 in refutation of the doctrine of sola fide. And they'll appeal to verses like this one, James 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? Ah, Abraham was justified by works. And for heaven's sakes, if that isn't the nail in the coffin, what about James 2.24? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If this isn't the death nail in the doctrine of sola fide, I don't know what is. It says we are not saved by faith alone. We're not justified. Uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how can you Protestants say and believe in the doctrine of sola fide when the Bible clearly says just the opposite? From the Catholic perspective, these verses are the death nail in this doctrine. So are the Catholics right? No, they are not. Remember, this passage is all about the person who claims to have faith. There is only one way to justify a person's claim to faith. You're never justified before God by your works. You're justified by faith, but your faith is justified before other people by your works. Can my claim to faith be justified in any sense before you as a congregation today? Yes, in the fruit that I bear before you. James makes it clear that Abraham was made righteous by faith alone. Don't miss this. Right between James 2.21 and 2.24 is James 2.23. And you know what James 2.23 says? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now let me ask you a question. When did Abraham believe? Did he believe on Mount Moriah when he was sacrificing his son or did he believe long before that? Long before that. Yeah, Abraham believed long before Abraham, before Isaac was even born that God was going to give him a son. And it was in the moment that Abraham believed that he was justified in God's sight. But his claim to faith, in a sense, was justified before the world when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. The same could be said of Rahab. James brings up Rahab. Like Abraham, Rahab was made righteous the moment she believed it was Rahab's accompanying works that proved or justified that her faith was genuine in the first place. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Not before God she wasn't, but before man she was when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. The Protestant reformers, when they spoke on this issue, they put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that is not self-contradictory we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is like a tree 
that grows up and bears green leaves. If it's a good tree, it will bear good fruit. It's inevitable. And this is what the reformers taught. The faith that saves will always be accompanied by good works manifesting itself in spiritual fruit. Now at this point, people get scared. People get scared and they begin to think, well, how much fruit do I have to bear in order before I know I'm saved? How much fruit do I have to bear before I know I'm actually saved? Well, world-renowned theologian, Dr. Wayne Grudem, with great theological precision, has one of the greatest quotes I've ever seen. And here's the quote. Some. Listen, we are all at different places in our spiritual journey. We are all at different places in our spiritual journey. And there are gonna be times in the life of a true believer when he or she will be on fire for the Lord and she or he will bear much fruit. There have been times in my life where I've just been on fire for God and it's like everything I do and everything I touch is just fruit everywhere. And yet there's other times in my life where not so much. There's been times in my life, had you run across me, you'd go, there ain't a whole lot of fruit there. And it was usually in those seasons where God is pruning me and he's cutting back those worthless branches and he's refining me like a good gardener. He's tending to his vineyard. Or take this for example, we shouldn't necessarily expect that a new believer in Christ will bear as much spiritual fruit, for example, as someone who's been a Christian 20, 30, or 40 years, or 50 years, right? A new believer in Christ isn't going to bear much fruit, but they will bear some fruit. The thief on the cross, for example, did he bear any spiritual fruit while he hung on the cross? Absolutely he did. He had a repentant heart before the Lord. He confessed his sin and he confessed the innocence of Christ. And then he went on to defend Christ against the other thief who was throwing accusations and slanders at Christ. And those are just the fruits that we know about that are recorded in scripture. The fact is, as he hung there, he may have bore other fruits that we don't even know about. God made him a good tree. He became a good vine, a good tree as he hung on that cross, as he hung on a tree. He became a good tree as he hung on a tree and he immediately started bearing fruit. For the Lord may not have been much fruit. He may have entered heaven with not a lot of fruit, but he bore fruit. The point is this, even the smallest amount of spiritual fruit is evidence that you are genuinely saved. Even the smallest amount. James is not here to try to get you to doubt your salvation, but to confirm your salvation. Jesus is not trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but to confirm your salvation. Even the smallest amount of fruit is evidence that you are a true born-again believer. And that, by the way, is why when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats on judgment day, Jesus does not appeal to people's professions of faith when he separates the sheep and the goat. goats. What's he do? He appeals to the fruit that they bore, proving that they were in possession of faith. It was not the profession of faith, it was the possession of faith. And the possession of faith was evidenced in the fact that those sheep bore true spiritual fruit. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in and I was naked and you clothed me. Fruit, 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 fruit. I was sick and you visited me. Fruit, I was in prison and you came to me. Fruit. Those on the right are those that have genuine saving faith as is manifested by their works. Trust me when I tell you, the goats 
The goats will be full of people who are professing to know Christ. But it is the sheeps that are in possession of the faith that saves, as is manifested in their works. Their works aren't what saved them. It is their faith alone that saved them, but the faith that saves always produces fruit. The type of fruit that helps those who are hungry and gives drinks of water to those that are thirsty. They welcome in strangers, they clothe the naked, they visit the sick, and they go to those in prison. Remember I said earlier, you can be really religious Be as religious as you want. Have great theology all you want. But the heart that truly belongs to God is going to be seen in the person who is broken and contrite before the Lord, knowing that we all like sheep have gone astray, who is clinging to Christ as their sole source of righteousness and who have given themselves over in submission to his rule and reign in their life. And instead of now going after the things the world goes after, they are now giving their life away in service to others, to those that are hungry and thirsty, to strangers, to those that are naked, to those that are in prison and those that are sick. We do these works not in order to get saved, but because because in fact we are saved. So what does this mean? Here's what I'll end with. If you are here today and you have never trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, he offers you a free gift today. That is the gift of salvation. The Bible says that he will never turn away anyone who comes to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter how messed up your future might look like. The Bible says all of those that come to him with a repentant, humble heart, he will receive. But you receive more than just salvation when you come to Christ. The Bible says that you become a good tree and that you immediately will start bearing fruit. Might not be a lot of fruit, but you'll start bearing fruit you'll start having this strange desire to obey. You'll have this strange desire to tell others about Jesus. You'll have this strange desire to care for those who are hungry and those who are thirsty and those that are strangers and those that are naked and those that are sick and those that are in prison. And the world may look at you and go, you're wasting your life. Why have you devoted yourself to these things? And the answer will be because I have made a good tree. And the Holy Spirit is producing good fruit in me. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you this day. We know, Father, that all good trees bear good fruit. And there's only one way to become a good tree, and that is by your mercy and your grace poured out on us. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today that has yet to come to Christ with a repentant, humble heart to trust in him as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they come to him. God, receiving salvation. I pray for those of us who are believers, God, we're all in different seasons. Some of us are being pruned right now and it's hard. Others of us are bearing much fruit, but God, we trust that he who began a good work in us will carry it on till that day of completion. And God, we trust, we trust that you will continue to work in us each and every day. In the quietness of your heart, I want you to spend a moment in private prayer. Bring to God your heart this morning. Wherever you are, he might be pruning you. He might be bearing much fruit through you. Or maybe there's somebody that you need to pray for. Somebody that thinks they're a Christian and maybe there's just no fruit and they need somebody to intercede for them and pray for them. Just spend a moment in private prayer right now.
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such as these, there is no law. Father, as we leave here now, make us a people that bear much fruit for you. God, may the world see that fruit and may many come to faith as we live our lives sold out for you. We love you. We thank you. We commit the rest of this day to you. We pray these things in Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And the church said, amen, amen. God bless. Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. One of my favorite memories I have growing up with my grandmother was listening to her stories of our family's Christian heritage. Every time I heard testimonies of God's faithfulness to our family, my heart burned 
with fresh determination and passion to devote my entire life to following my ancestors' footsteps and emulating their sacrificial obedience and hearts of worship. I am a fifth-generation believer and am blessed to have grown up in a godly home where I watched my family living their lives devoted to Christ. However, the cost of this heritage was not free. We lost my great-grandfather and grandfather, who were both pastors at the hands of communists during the Korean War in 1950. Through the account of a fellow pastor who has survived being tragically shot, our family found out that my grandfather had been martyred in prison. But there was always a mystery regarding my great-grandfather's death. In 1948, he was sent to pastor at a small Methodist church in a countryside of Korea far away from his own family. In June, while he was home visiting his family, the war broke out. He then heard about the persecution and threats that his elder back at the church was facing as communists were rigorously searching for their pastor at his home. As soon as my great-grandfather heard this news, he decided to immediately return to his church to protect his congregation. That was the last time his family saw him on this earth, and they never found out what happened to him until 68 years later in 2018. Our God is so amazing! Out of his faithful love, the Lord divinely connected my great-uncle to the last eyewitness of my great-grandfather. She's the oldest daughter of that persecuted elder, Mr. Kim, who worshipped and served God with my great-grandfather at his Methodist church. When my great-grandfather was arrested, by communists shortly after returning to his church. Mr. Kim's family found out where their pastor was imprisoned. The elder's wife, Mrs. Kim, prepared barley rice meals, and a 13-year-old daughter walked three miles to the prison every morning and evening to bring them to their pastor. On the 15th day, when this girl arrived at the prison, Her pastor was no longer there. The people told her, Your pastor worshipped and prayed to God without ceasing. So communists tortured him and shot him to death. She ran home weeping and shared this tragic news with her parents and the church. This happened 69 years ago in July 1950. That 13-year-old girl is now an 82-year-old godly deacon who serves Jesus faithfully at our church. After many years passed, she never forgot her last recollection of our pastor, nor the Methodist church that still stands and worships God today, 69 years after his martyrdom. It is truly a testimony of God's amazing grace 
and faithfulness. God put a desire in this deacon's precious heart to persistently pray and search for the descendants of her pastor. Years later, that day finally arrived when she met my great-uncle and his family in Korea for the first time, and they worshipped at the Methodist church where their ancestors served together many years ago, praising and giving God all the glory for the amazing things He had done. When I first heard this story two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit filled my heart with fresh passion and holy fear as he reminded me of these following scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, which says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Also, Psalm 37 Verse 18, which says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. My brothers and sisters, what kind of spiritual legacy would you like to leave to your descendants? What I share with you today is God's story. No matter where we are in life and what we are going through, If we choose to believe God and His faithful promises in His Word, God is the one who will start the generational blessing in our family, and He will keep His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations. Can we rise up together to hear His Word today and choose to make a new commitment to live our lives in uncompromising faith and sacrificial obedience so we can leave a spiritual legacy to our descendants that will inspire and strengthen them to continually press forward to serve an eternal kingdom of God fulfilled on this earth as it is in heaven in every generation? Let's pray. Lord, we enter into your presence with songs of radical thanksgiving as we sing the songs of your mighty miracles. Father, there is no one like you. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are forever faithful and keep all your promises to every generation. God, we make a new commitment to live our lives in uncompromising faith and sacrificial obedience. Pour out your Spirit on us and our descendants so we can worship you in wonder and awe with holy desire and passion forever. All praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power and might belong to you forever and ever. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.
When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>